Today, we're talking about this absolutely wild situation around Logan Paul and his fiance, who's now suing Dylan Dennis after he leaked explicit images and videos of her. Prosecutors slapped mommy vlogger, YouTuber Ruby Frankie with child abuse charges. Police are frantically hunting for a murderer who escaped prison by crab walking up a wall. Danny Masterson was just sentenced to 30 years to life in prison. Mexico's making history. Florida man's at it again. The problem with the Save the Bees narrative. We're gonna talk about all that and so much more on today's brand new extra large Philip DeFranco show. You daily dive into the news, so hit that like button to let me know you like these big shows and let's just jump into it. Starting with this ugly Logan Paul, Nina Agdahl, Dylan Dana situation has been getting worse and is now going to court. Right, Logan and Dylan are set to fight in October and leading up to these fights you usually see a fair amount of trash talk. But many argue that Dylan has taken it way too far by repeatedly dragging Logan's fiance Nina into it. With Dylan constantly sharing pictures of her with other men, making jokes, suggesting she slept with a lot of men. A few weeks ago he also suggested he had a nuclear bomb photo of Nina so salacious that if he shared it the fight would be canceled and he could go to jail. And these kind of posts he has been putting out have been non-stop. There was a day I counted he did over 20 of this specific thing. And while everything was essentially kind of playing out in the court of public opinion, Nina apparently had enough, with TMZ reporting that she actually filed a lawsuit and is seeking a restraining order against Dylan, claiming that he posted despicable things about her over 250 times since the fight was announced, saying it caused her to suffer humiliation, emotional distress, and harm to her reputation. But also, a very key thing here is it's not just all of the images. The lawsuit specifically calls out one sexually explicit image that he shared from 10 years ago and claiming that Dylan posted that image uncensored without consent, and adding he only agreed to remove the picture from the internet when Misfits Boxing, which is hosting his fight against Logan, had him take it down. The lawsuit also pointing to a video that he posted where Nina discusses a period of celibacy in her life, saying that clip was stored in her Snapchat archive and alleging that Dylan must have hacked the account to obtain it. And so Nina is seeking unspecified damages, but is after at least $150,000 per violation of intimate image laws. And that's in addition to asking a judge to bar Dylan from posting explicit images of her going forward. Now, as far as Dylan's response to this, he wrote, Nina Agdahl has filed a massive lawsuit against me. She filed a restraining order against me and is seeking prison time. So the fight is in jeopardy if I'm in jail. This is actually wild, but I won't stop. Fuck the system. Come get me. Logan Paul is a dead man walking. And adding, I will provide more details when I can, but because it's a federal case, I can't at this time. P.S. Fuck that hoe. Though there, I do have to point out he is either lying or stupid. With even TMZ noting that the lawsuit says nothing about missing the fight or jail time because, quote, that's not how lawsuits work. Also, a number of lawyers saying they don't know why he said he can't talk about it because it is a federal case, noting it's actually easier to get information about the lawsuit because it's a federal case. But with that, you know, unsurprisingly, Dylan has then continued to post more slut-shaming memes since the suit came out, with him also posting a video of Nina crying and calling her a clout whore in another post. And so we'll have to see how all this plays out, but I, I think where I want to end this is, like, if you do not like Logan Paul, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to fight for Logan Paul. The man is as good at WWE as he is at giving people reasons to dislike him. But the acceptance and the celebration of Dylan Dennis slut-shaming his fiance as a way to get to Logan is scumbag behavior. And what's kind of funny is that if the details of this fight provided by people like Jake Paul are true, that Logan Paul is making money on the back end of the pay-per-view and Dylan Dennis isn't, and all this scumbag behavior is actually overwhelmingly benefiting Logan Paul and his fiance, if we're talking about people getting fucked, Dylan Dennis is the first name that comes to mind, especially if part of his flat fee payout has to go with settling with Nina Agdahl. And then Danny Masterson was just sentenced to 30 years to life in prison for raping two women in 2003. Right? And this has been an absolutely huge case because not only was Masterson convicted of raping two women, he was also accused of using his status in the Church of Scientology to silence those women to prevent them from reporting the crime. And these crimes notably happened at the height of his fame on that 70s show, with the jury finding him guilty on two counts, though they weren't able to reach a verdict on a claim from a third woman. And upon sentencing him, the 
Associated Press reported that the judge said, Mr. Masterson, I know that you're sitting here steadfast in your claims of innocence, and thus no doubt feeling victimized by a justice system that has failed you. But Mr. Masterson, you are not the victim here. Your actions 20 years ago took away another person's voice and choice. One way or another, you will have to come to terms with your prior actions and their consequences. And the AP also reporting, this is the maximum sentence, meaning Masterson will only be eligible for parole after serving 25 and a half years. And you also had the victims speaking here with one saying, you are pathetic, disturbed, and completely violent. The world is better off with you in prison. And the other is saying that he belongs behind bars for the safety of all the women he came in contact with and adding, I am so sorry and I'm so upset. I wish I'd reported him sooner to the police. And then Ruby Frankie has officially been charged with six felony counts of child abuse. Right, we talked about Ruby last week. You might know her from Eight Passengers, a former family YouTube channel. But there's learning that she and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt, were arrested after a child now identified as Ruby's 12-year-old son climbed out of a window to get help from a neighbor. Them asking for food and water, reportedly having duct tape on his wrists and ankles, appearing malnourished. With another child now identified as Ruby's 10-year-old daughter later discovered in a similar condition. And on top of Ruby's charges, Jody was also charged with the same six felony child abuse counts. With a county attorney telling NBC News that each count carries a prison sentence of up to 15 years and a fine as high as $10,000. And that attorney added, there are two juvenile victims in these cases and each defendant is accused of causing or permitting serious physical injury to the victims in three different ways. One, a combination of multiple physical injuries or torture, two, starvation or malnutrition that jeopardizes life, and three, causing severe emotional harm. And as far as where things stand with Ruby's husband, Kevin Frankie, right, that was one of the big questions when we first covered this, his attorney told Good Morning America that he's been separated from Ruby and they haven't lived together for 13 months and he is distraught at these allegations. But for now, that's where we are and we'll keep our eyes on this story so when there are updates, you'll know. And then, a deadly game of hide-and-seek has Eastern Pennsylvania petrified and it all begins with a story of so-called romance and murder. Or because you have Deborah, a 33-year-old old Brazilian woman who came to the United States years ago looking to secure a better future for her two young children. And at her home in Chester County, she met a friendly neighbor, 34-year-old Danilo Cavalcante. He, like her, was also Brazilian, and soon enough, they started dating. But Deborah's sister said that while he was nice at first, things eventually changed. With her saying about Deborah, she kept saying that he was extremely jealous, that when he drank, he became a different person, that he kept going through her cell phone. So in late 2020, Deborah files a protection from abuse order against him, alleging he had a history of assaulting her and once pulled a knife on her. But then, just months later, he showed up at her home and killed her. And as it turns out, he's also wanted for another homicide that happened in Brazil in 2017. And before he could escape the authorities, they arrested him and he was convicted last month for first-degree murder. And the judge there sentencing him to life without parole, but apparently he was having none of that because eight days ago, he escaped. With a video showing him in the prison's exercise yard, Crab walking up the side of this building by putting his hands on one wall, placing his feet on another, and then shimmying up out of frame. With him then reportedly getting through some razor wire at the top, running across the roof, scaling another fence, and then going through more razor wire. And reportedly, there are now several people taking blame for this. First, whoever was monitoring the prison's 160 cameras. Second, the guard who was in the tower overlooking the exercise yard and who is now on administrative leave. And third, the consultants who were brought in to reinforce security after another inmate escaped using the same route back in May. Where it turns out that razor wire was added to stop future escapees from scaling the wall, but clearly it wasn't enough. And so for the past week, hundreds of officers have been searching for this man and they've gotten several credible sightings within a few miles of the prison. Right on Monday, a trail camera caught him at Longwood Gardens scaring two nearby school districts into canceling classes, with him somehow appearing to have obtained a backpack, a duffel sling type pack, and a hooded sweatshirt. Then on Tuesday, a resident spotted him in a creek bed in Pensbury Township, but he fled into the woods before the police could get him. And with that, a big reason that he's eluded them is that the environment is great for hiding. Right, you've got miles of dense woodlands, ravines, and tall grass, as well as residential property with many outbuildings and landscaping. And then you're dealing with 90-degree heat and humidity that not only put one search dog out of service, but also blinds aerial infrared cameras. Plus, keep in mind, we're talking about a guy who's five foot tall, 120 pounds, so he's not exactly a large target. But, of course, despite his size, police say that he is extremely dangerous and desperate not to get caught. And so they've warned local residents to keep their doors locked, stay inside, check on each other, and check their security cameras. And arguably, no one's more terrified of this
Samantha's murder on the loose than his ex-girlfriend Deborah's sister, or with her also having been taking care of the two motherless kids ever since the murder, and her saying, I haven't slept for many days. Since then, I have been waking up with fright at night. And so now, there's a $20,000 reward being offered to anyone who can help provide information leading to this man's capture. And so for any reason, that's you. Go collect your money. And then a Florida man, so you know this story is going to be good, was crossing the Atlantic Ocean in a hamster wheel and he's now been arrested after a three-day standoff. Right, this guy who set off from Florida, apparently he intended to get to London by running on the wheel, but then 70 miles into his journey, the Coast Guard stopped him. Which may lead you to ask, where in the law does it say that it's illegal to hamster wheel across the ocean? And well, it, it turns out it doesn't actually look like it's illegal, but the issue is that our would-be hero went rogue when the Coast Guard approached his wheel because he responded by threatening to harm himself with a knife and then pretended to have a bomb. With him finally getting arrested after a three-day standoff, and he's been charged with obstructing a boarding and violation of a captain of the port order. And as it turns out, looking into this, this is his fourth time attempting to do this. And actually, in 2002, he was arrested for trying to illegally enter the United States. But the judge there let him off and granted him asylum after he promised to run from LA to New York City to commemorate the second anniversary of 9-11. He was set free on a $250,000 bond with the terms that he can't go into the ocean or board a vessel on the ocean. So you know, normal Florida man things. And then, y'all, it is my favorite time of year starting today, football season. I'm gonna be glued to my couch watching the games. I'm actually gonna go to a game this weekend. And with that, I need to tell you about a fantastic sponsor of today's show, Underdog Fantasy. And Underdog is the easiest way to play fantasy sports, and not just football. You can make picks on baseball, basketball, UFC, and more. And it's simple. You just pick whether you think your favorite player's stats will be higher or lower, and you can make big money, not just get bragging rights. Like this, these are my picks for NFL Week 1. As you can tell, I'm very impatient. I want to know how it's gonna go by the end of Thursday. And if I'm right on all of them, I'm walking out with 20 times my money. You can also make your own entry with as few as two picks and still make three times your money back. And Underdog's Pick'em games are available in 32 states, including California, Texas, and Florida. So what are you waiting for? I know for me personally, it's gonna make watching the Chargers game this weekend even more interesting, especially because in my main fantasy league, my buddies sniped Eckler and Herbert from me. Yeah, you can rep your team and make your own picks with Underdog. All you gotta do is sign up by clicking the link down below or via the app store with promo code DeFranco or the link down in the description or scan the QR code and Underdog will double your first deposit of $100. That's Underdog Fantasy, promo code DeFranco. And then Rotten Tomatoes is a fraud. That is what many are saying now after an investigation published in Vulture highlighting just how easily the platform, which is the most influential site in film criticism, is game. With one of the biggest takeaways being that some critics have allegedly been paid to write reviews to boost a film's Rotten Tomatoes score, and the piece using a 2018 film, Ophelia, starring Daisy Ridley, to highlight how this works. Noting that when a publicity company called Bunker 15 started working on the film, there were only 13 critics' reviews from early screenings, and seven of those were negative, landing the movie a 46% on the platform, with that, of course, translating to not good because anything below 60% is considered rotten. And so Bunker 15 allegedly took matters into their own hands to up that number by reportedly recruiting obscure, often self-published critics who are nevertheless part of the pool tracked by Rotten Tomatoes. And noting in another break from standard practice, several critics say Bunker 15 pays them $50 or more for each review, and further explaining that a Bunker 15 staffer emailed a potential reviewer about the film and noting that the movie would benefit from more input from different critics. And that employee did say, of course, journalists can write whatever they feel, but they also added that, quote, super nice ones often agree to not publish negative reviews on their primary website, instead sidelining those to a smaller blog that Rotten Tomatoes never sees, so they can make sure that the platform's only getting the positive reviews and the negative ones don't influence the score. And then bam, would you look at that, over the span of a few months, eight new reviews were added for Ophelia, with notably seven of them being positive and most of which came from critics who had reviewed other Bunker 15 movies. And so Ophelia's score climbed to a much better 62%, with one writer saying that Bunker 15 even tried to lobby them to change their negative review to something that would just be, quote, barely overall positive. Now with all that said, for what it's worth, the founder of Bunker 15 denied that they pay for reviews to manipulate Rotten Tomatoes, instead telling Vulture, wow, you are really reaching there. We have thousands of writers 
providers in our distribution list. A small handful have set up a specific system where filmmakers can sponsor or pay to have them review a film. But it's also not just bribery that's allegedly being used to game Rotten Tomatoes, right? Because reportedly its algorithm is flawed to begin with, with it calculating scores by deciding if a review is good or bad, and then dividing the positives by the total, meaning that all reviews are weighted the same, whether it comes from a noted publication or a random substep. And notably in this situation, there's also no room for nuance, right? For reviews in the middle, or let's say a film is excellent versus kinda good, or horrific versus not my cup of tea. And on top of that, Rotten Tomatoes starts publishing scores when as few as like five reviews are in. And even though those reviews might not reflect how the final pool of critics at large see the film, if they're positive, studios will run with it and put that high score on every piece of marketing. When you're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry, it's not surprising that studios have made a game out of this, right? They try to make sure that the first critics to see the movie are gonna be the ones that like it. That way it has as high a score as possible when early ticket sales start before any more negative reviews might roll in. And while that's certainly not as blatantly unethical as paying for positive reviews, it is a sign of why these scores can't always be trusted. And it also hits on why so many in the film industry just can't stand the chokehold Rotten Tomatoes has in this space. In fact, it's why we saw so many critics responding to this piece by saying things like, Rotten Tomatoes has always been an embarrassment to the profession. The certified critic designation, the equivalent of a participation trophy, the grading format, a total sham. And even absent any foul play from studios and PR firms, the platform is useless as a metric for evaluation. Deeply anti-art and antithetical to good criticism. As well as, why am I wasting my time trying and often failing to say something interesting about movies I see when I should just be writing yes or no and hitting publish? Now with all this, it is also worth noting that when Vulture contacted Rotten Tomatoes about Bunker 15's alleged antics, the company said, we take the integrity of our scores seriously and do not tolerate any attempts to manipulate them. We have a dedicated team who monitors our platforms regularly and thoroughly investigates and resolves any suspicious activity. And actually with that, a number of Bunker 15 films have now been delisted and writers who reviewed them are getting a warning. The Daily Beast reporting that Ophelia is among the films that have been taken down. I'm also going to link to Vulture's full report. It goes even further, dives deeper. But I got to ask, what are your thoughts on this? Because I mean, I am, even though I know that it is a flawed system, even before reporting it, I still use it as a resource. But what are your feelings on this story? Also, do you use other things when you're taking into account reviews or you just try and stay away from them? And then for over a decade now, I'm sure that you've heard of the apocalypse and how their disappearance would be an ecological and agricultural disaster as their borderline required for many plant species to reproduce and thrive. But here's the thing. It ends up in our quest to save the bees. We have focused far too much on honeybees at the cost of nearly every other species. Now, that's not to say that honeybees were not in dire straits. Right around 2006, they were suffering from what's been dubbed colony collapse disorder. With its exact cause still widely debated with many experts suspecting a combination of parasites, pesticides, and loss of habitat. But what was clear was the devastation that was happening with some beekeepers reporting losses as high as 90% of their hives. However, it ends up that that singular focus on honeybees was too effective. With an executive director of the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation in Portland, Oregon, telling the New York Times, it was the first time that a large number of people started talking about pollinators, which was great. The downside was that there was no nuance. All anyone heard was that bees were declining and so I should get a hive. So many hives were started and so many people got into beekeeping that honeybees are generally thriving worldwide now. I mean, it's now at a point where businesses in an effort to seem eco-friendly will also rent out hives. And, you know, it makes sense that we would focus on the honeybees. They are the species that we most interact with as humans and, you know, honey's fucking awesome. I mean, I'm not gonna go all Winnie the Pooh, but that shit and tea is top tier. But also another reason that many of you might not realize is because in most countries, honeybees are actually very regulated like any other livestock. Not only because we consume their honey, but also because we use them to work our fields, right? Farms all over the world, especially in the US, rent out massive hives to help pollinate their crops. It is a massive industry that's led to the widespread commercialization of bees. And that is often a win-win-win. For the farmers, it's arguably the most efficient way to pollinate crops, with some crops like almonds essentially requiring bees for their reproductive cycles. And for beekeepers, they not only make money on their bees being rented, but on the honey afterwards. However, all of that has come at the cost of pretty much every other pollinator. Or with one big reason being the honeybees just generally have the largest populations by far. So as they compete for nectar, they push out all of the competition, such as wasps, which I get it, fuck wasps. I say this with every ounce of hate in my heart, they're demonic little bastards and I could sleep well knowing we led to their extinction. But as much as you or I may 
hate them, they're also actually amazing pollinators alongside things like moths. So they're hardly the only bee competition. And as much as I wish we didn't have to deal with wasps, even their loss would be a serious blow to biodiversity. And all the attention on honeybees also comes at the cost of other bee species not getting any love. And one reason is that many of these bees are solitary, such as bumblebees, and they live in areas that we rarely interact with, such as tree hollows. Also, another factor is that they don't produce honey, both of which are key factors for why honeybees are loved. But those other bees are nearly as effective at pollinating. And they also suffer from major habitat loss and the effects of pesticides, just like their more lovable cousins. And in fact, it has gotten to such a point that our love for honeybees is now at a point where we are actively harming them as well. We're replacing so many honeybees near one another that they're not only competing with other pollinators, but each other. And when honeybees don't have enough nectar, they rely on their honey for energy. And it's actually gotten to such a point that you have places such as in Slovenia that are producing less honey now than they did 15 years ago. And that's despite currently having way more honeybees. Now, this isn't to say that we need to completely ignore the honeybees, right? because at times they're still struggling to maintain their populations. Like in the United States, where nearly half of all colonies died last year. Though don't worry there, they're stabilized now. But when asked, many beekeepers are now suggesting to potential clients that they don't rent any honeybees. Instead, saying set up their habitats where other bee species can live or put out plants they prefer. That way, current honeybee populations won't be neglected while still giving all the moths, wasps, and other bees a fighting chance to keep biodiversity alive. And so with that, you now know uh, too much or exactly the right amount about the bee situation. Or save the bees, a simple message, but a, a more complex, nuanced situation. And then, I want to take a second to thank a sponsor of today's show, Incognito. You know, because when I signed up and I saw right away how many data brokers had my information, I was appalled and to be honest, felt a bit violated. But then I also saw within a week, Incognito had already started their reach out and are having them scrubbed out as I speak. Because you know, it's really annoying how companies collect, aggregate, and trade your personal information without you knowing it. Data brokers, marketing brokers, financial information brokers, they all sell what they have on you to third parties or they use it for themselves. And the process of deleting this information is a process none of us have time for. And with as little as a phone number, old address, or a name to start them off, complete strangers can actually buy records containing an alarming amount of your sensitive information. But Incogni can automatically remove your personal data from those kinds of websites. And whether you're privacy conscious or you just don't like the idea of some random Joe Schmo finding out where you live or your work, it just makes sense to take advantage of a service that keeps this information private. So just go to incogni.com slash DeFranco and don't forget to use code DeFranco to get 60% off. That's incogni.com slash DeFranco and use code DeFranco to take your personal data off the market. And then we got drama in Georgia. Because if you missed the Fulton County Commission meeting in Georgia yesterday, grab some popcorn because it was no normal meeting. And that's specifically because of what happened between one county commissioner, Natalie Hall, and her former chief of staff, Calvin Brock. Right? She's admitted to banging him in her office during their relationship, but he claims that when he broke up with her, she fired him. And so now he's suing her for wrongful termination and sexual harassment. But while that's winding its way through a federal court, Hall's fellow commissioners voted five to one to censure her for what they called an inappropriate relationship. With that, marking the first time it sanctioned one of its own members in nearly a decade, and unsurprisingly, it was tense. With Commissioner Marvin Arrington, the only no vote, defending Hall and repeatedly trying to halt the vote, saying the matter should have been discussed in executive session due to pending litigation. And then others accusing him of hijacking a meeting and yelling over each other that he's out of order. Then he had some less tense moments like the public comment period when a woman chose to sing her statement. Meanwhile, Hall just kept her mouth shut the entire proceeding, only smiling during that song. But also, she may not be smiling when election season rolls around, because that could cut into her support. And the only reason the commission didn't vote to fire her as some members wanted to was that it didn't have the authority to do so. And then, Mexico's kind of doing the opposite of the United States right now. Starting with their Supreme Court's unanimous decision to heavily increase abortion access yesterday by decriminalizing it federally. With the court writing on social media, the first chamber of the court ruled that the legal system that penalizes abortion in the federal criminal code is unconstitutional since it violates the human rights 
rights of women and people with the capacity to gestate. And that's a pretty drastic change there, as only 12 states out of 31 so far had made similar rulings. And for those of you watching and thinking like that system of overlapping authority between state and federal governments, it sounds awfully familiar. It is. They're formerly called United Mexican States for a reason. And hell, even their capital is a federal entity that is a de facto state, but not really. But that tangent aside, this ruling is just the latest step in the country's slow acceptance of abortion. Right? Because back in 2021, their Supreme Court already ruled that it was illegal to criminalize abortion access after one of the states attempted to do so. Though notably then, they stopped short of formally sanctioning it. Also, as we know here in the States, there's a massive difference between decriminalizing something and fully legalizing it. But on a practical level for Mexican citizens, there's very little difference. And actually, it's a difference that matters to far more than just Mexicans, but Americans as well. And that's because since a bunch of our states have decided to regress and decided to become repressive hellholes for women, Mexico has actually become an attractive place to seek abortion. Also, in other Mexico news, the two frontrunners to become the next president of Mexico are women, a first and major milestone in the country. And the election's kind of just around the corner, June 2024, with the current president, AMLO, not being in the conversation because Mexico prohibits presidents from being around for more than two terms. But as far as who we're looking at and talking about from the current ruling left-wing Morena party, you have Mexico City's former mayor and climate scientist Claudia Scheinbaum coming out on top amongst supporters, which is a close ally of AMLO, which is likely giving her a pretty big popularity boost among party supporters. And that support will be sorely needed as she had a pretty distinct upbringing compared to many of Morena's normal voters. But at the same time, many analysts say that she needs to also try and make her own image that's distinct from AMLO to have any chance. Also, another issue that she's facing is that one of her party's challengers claims that there were shenanigans during the polls, with many fearing that he still may challenge her going forward and split the party's base. And then facing her from a broad coalition of parties is Sochi Galvez. And Galvez is a businesswoman who actually might be able to sap some traditional supporters from Morena. And that's because she has a pretty aspirational story of growing up like most average Mexicans, living in a mixed indigenous mestizo household before working her way through public education and becoming a successful businesswoman and senator. And on top of that, despite being from the conservative pan party, she still supports a lot of progressive policies such as climate change, abortion, and LGBTQ plus rights. So think more fiscally conservative than socially. However, she also has one major problem. Despite her recent appointment as the opposition's candidate creating a lot of media buzz, her biggest issue is that 48% of Mexicans still reportedly have no idea who she is. So you're talking about a massive hurdle. And what's also interesting is that both candidates were chosen through public polls among party supporters. And that's a pretty drastic change for Mexico because in the past, many of those decisions were just behind closed-ish doors. But for now, we'll have to keep our eyes on this, especially because it's just kind of crazy to see how much Mexico has changed. I mean, at least socially over the last 10 years or so. And so especially with this, if you're watching from Mexico or you're from Mexico or you've got family there or whatever, any, if you have connections and, and to any degree, what are your thoughts regarding what we're seeing right now? And then let's look at yesterday today. I mean, we covered a number of topics yesterday, but there were definitely a few that just took over the comment section regarding that nightmare diarrhea plane story. Y'all were saying, I pray that diarrhea plane person remains permanently anonymous at all costs. Someone claiming my best friend's mom was on the flight from Atlanta to Barcelona and was sitting right in front of the poor person saying she said it really did smell awful, but thankfully everyone on the flight was actually really nice and cooperative about it. Most people just wanted the person who was sick to be okay. There were also definitely a lot of people with IBS going like, oh my God, this is my living nightmare. And in general, it was nice to see the majority of y'all not being shitty about it. Also, a number of people were talking about their experiences with the one chip challenge, saying they did it in 2022. The mouth pain faded after 20 minutes, but adding the stomach pain began after 20 to 30 minutes and lasted for several hours. Saying it was absolutely excruciating. Whole body had chills. I was in the fetal position, dry heaving and sweating so much, I thought I was going to die. Some seeming to have avoided disaster, saying they were glad they helped convince a mom to not let her five-year-old child have one at a gas station. Others describing it as swallowing it felt like glass on fire and I didn't eat anything for the next two days. And then finally, there were definitely a lot of comments from people in Wisconsin that were just so pissed off about the Protosawit situation, saying they voted for her, thought it was going to be extremely hard for her to win. It turned out she pulled it off. It filled me with pride. But then saying the fact that Janet now has to turn around and fight to keep her elected position is astonishing to me. Why is it we can't have our voices heard? Why can't they accept that the majority has spoken? When did our elected officials start deciding that their voices and opinions were more important than ours, the people? These officials who say they are part of the reason we should be proud citizens of the United States are really part of the reason 
reason I hang my head in shame. And I think just to add on to that, I think it's really important that we talk about these things, one, because they matter, but two, examples like this really fracture the idea of you are voting for one of two equally evil parties. I absolutely hate the two-party system in America, but uh, when you look at the politicians, you see that uh, we're not dealing with equal problems. And that is where today's Extra Large show is going to end. Thank you again for being subscribed to these daily dives into the news. Also, if you want more news that you need to know, I got you covered right here. You can click or tap, or I got links in the description. And if you're all caught up, don't worry, because my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love your faces, and I'll see you right back here for more news next time.